everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast of a bunch of writers sitting around drinking tasty beverages and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your hosts today are John Schmidt and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 113, an interview with Todd Downing. Welcome, Todd. Hello. Todd, you are seriously the renaissance mad of Gen X, and I feel like you represent us beautifully that way. <laughs> oh, I've never heard that, but that's, I'll take it. <laughs> no, no, I mean, you're, you, you're a veteran of the RPG tabletop gaming. You've written for stage, screen, comics, mm-hmm. interactive narrative games. You recorded your own novels into audiobooks. Is there anything you can't do? <laughs> Uh, don't answer that question. Yeah, go ahead. Don't, don't, (laughs) don't. He can do everything. The question is, what do you call this, this airship stuff? Because my instinct is to say that's obviously steampunk, but you're not in Victorian times. So is it steampunk du jour? What's going on there? So, uh, steampunk is, would, would actually be the, the closest kind of, uh, major genre to what I write in, in the Airship Daedalus, uh, series. But because it's more set in the 1920s and 30s, the interbellum period between the world wars, um, and dealing with kind of weird science and not really steam at all, it's come to be called diesel punk or what I really love, the, the more recent term is deco punk, because that speaks more to the artistic and design aesthetic of the period. Oh, now I want to see the decoupage of decopunk. <laughs> you, uh, let's see, you, it's, you started off, was that what you, you got started in writing doing the RPG games or where did you, where was your beginning? I, well, I was drawing um, from a very, very early age and uh, in school I would, I would uh, draw and really publish my own comics, uh, publish as in I would make copies and circulate them amongst my friends and sometimes even charge money for them. So <laughs> I was very industrious, precocious young artist at the, uh, back in the day. But I started writing, I think, with a real passion for science fiction and fantasy right around junior high, when I discovered uh, Ray Bradbury and, and some of the, uh, the other pulp sci-fi authors uh, of his era. And um, that led to screenwriting that led to um, actually honing more uh, of a skill of screenwriting and then long form fiction and so on, so forth. And where did it, when did you get started on, were you an early D&D player when you started oh, game sure. creation? Were you- for sure, for sure. And, and uh, you know, I was with that, in that crop of, um, I, I would say first generation uh, D&D players, because it was the, the late 70s. Um, I think that that counts. And we played very actively throughout junior high, high school, college, uh, and into adulthood. And I don't think I've ever really stopped for a significant period of time. Well, that's fair. I was going to say one of the things I liked about reading through some of your different RPGs that you've done is you seem to have taken a way of divorcing the fun part of the game from the mechanics. And for everybody, before you threw your dice at me and say, dicing is fun. <laughs> There can be a certain barrier to the beginning of role play if you say, okay, here's your charts and you roll, et cetera. It, it can get in the way of the game. And it looks like you've come up with a couple systems that 
involve role playing and chance elements without necessarily requiring everybody to have their own little dice bag instead of polyhedrons of different colors. Correct. Yeah. The the design philosophy that I have always taken through my RPG work has been that the system should support the setting or the narrative, not vice versa. It's not about charts. It's not about being as detailed and crunchy as possible, unless you're really into that. And I, I do not system shame people. Uh, chart, for what, chart master lovers can love yeah, chart master. It's okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I personally like a more uh, visceral experience, a more emotional experience when I'm interacting with my friends across the table or, or over Zoom uh, around a, a virtual table. You know, it's, it's very much... I need the system to be as unobtrusive as possible while still facilitating the narrative. And you have some lovely different systems you've worked on. I mean, despite the the deco punk and some of the others, you have a little bit of high gothic in the uh, the grim fairy tales and Frankenstein in right. a direction and. That's uh, Grim World uh, was just you know, that was a, a twenty year labor of love that we we finally launched uh, back in I think July July first um, and that was uh, that actually uses playing cards as a randomizer. It's not the first game to do that, um, but it we again using our design philosophy, we kind of were thinking about, well, what is going to be most appropriate for a Regency era setting, a Georgian Gothic uh, dark fantasy setting. And knowing that, you know, cards were all the rage at the time and that only the lower uh, people of society gamed with dice, uh, (laughs) that, that it was really appropriate for us to do, to go that, that route. I was. I have to confess, I was almost hoping you'd say, okay, you're going to need a tarot deck for this. <laughs> well, you can. You could certainly use a tarot deck. Awesome. But then you also love superheroes. You've got a superhero version. And you're, you wrote a web series, right, called The Collectibles? Yes. Yeah. I uh, actually was a co-creator uh, with uh, Dan and Trish Heinrich, um, who are some of my, my close friends and uh, creative collaborators up here in the Seattle area. And I had cast Trish in a short film of mine and uh, then got to meet her husband, Dan, through that. And uh, we just we forged a, a very close friendship. So, yeah, we um, we love to create stuff together and uh, they're good sounding boards. Awesome. Now, did, did you move to Seattle because it was such a big gaming center or is that where you got involved with um, PlayStation and et cetera? Not at all. Um, I was, well, my late wife and I were in our early 20s when we realized that we were free to leave California. It it was starting to get a little bit, uh, you know, just uh, a little bit stale and and crowded in our old stomping grounds. And we were part of kind of this artistic migration of the early 90s up to Seattle. We were not the only ones for sure. And uh but it just it ended up being a, a very conducive place to be artistic and to be able to um, support yourself while being artistic and to raise a family and, you know, things like that. So I kind of fell into video games uh, as a, a concept artist and uh, art director, worked for um, Zipper Interactive and Boss Game Studios and Microsoft. And When did you, know. you I was going to say, when did you realize that you could just 
do gaming and writing and drawing as a full-time job? Did you have to double team it with a day job too? Or how did you know you made it? Well, that's, um, let's see. Uh, This is asking me to go way back, but um, (laughs) I think. uh, (laughs) That's an answer in itself. Yeah. Uh, This was kind of at the beginning of the first generation of 3D consoles, um, you know, the original PlayStation or PSX, the Sega Saturn, the N64, you know, those, those platforms. And I kind of was in the right place at the right time. I uh, was running, actually running a physical uh, game and hobby store in West Seattle that I had opened with another friend of mine. And this opportunity presented itself that this new startup game company that was affiliated with uh, Richard Edlund's special effects company in LA mm. was starting up. And that's, you know, boss films was his, his film company. They did the effects for, um, you know, ghostbusters and um, you know, species and you know, a whole bunch of, whole bunch of movies. So I got in kind of on the ground floor there and that led to uh, a bunch of other opportunities uh, up to and including Sierra Online, where I was part of the Hoyle Group doing a, a casino simulator. <laughs> <laughs> Moving forward into your, your writing of novels, I read your Calico Kids, which I loved. Well, thank and you. I also love that you did the audiobook track, as everybody can hear now. He's got a great <laughs> voice for it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was- I, I got a I, I got a uh, a really fun review uh, of the audiobook where someone said um, my they referred to my narration as my first generation dude voice or dude accent. That's fair. I mean, it, it does still have echoes of California. <laughs> it does. You can it's- take the kid off the beach, but the sand kind of gets into everything. It's a beautiful nice. love letter to the eighties, though it really was, and. I think if people loved Scooby-Doo and I think Ready Player One sort of primed a lot of the world for for this book. I think sure. all- and Stranger Things. Um, Stranger Things and Super yeah. 8, absolutely. Yeah. And you also seem to have a good memory of being a teenager. That's something I hope I never lose. That's, uh, I think it made me a good parent. I think it, or a better parent anyway, that I would have been otherwise. It just... Yeah. There, you, don't, you don't have any illusions. You don't ha- seem to have any of the, oh, it was much better. There's no rosy sunglasses. Oh, it's- no. <laughs> no, it was a rough time. I mean, anybody who lived through it can can verify that. <laughs> you know, it was not, it was not idyllic. Uh, you know, we were kind of existing under the ever-present threat of nuclear annihilation at the end of the Cold War. And we were um, the, the ultimate latchkey generation. Absolutely. Yeah, we had no supervision. We were living life. As I say in the uh, in the foreword, living life without a helmet, and and not not everyone survived it, and that's kind of the the danger of of that kind of environment. But here we are. I have tried with other friends on a more serious note to remind them that we are the generation that had only Doctor Spock was influenced about a third of us, and yet we somehow dodged some of the worst of that. Yeah. And Latchkey, we raised ourselves. So if yep. we hit adulthood and have some challenges thereby, I think it's only fair to say they didn't know. Our parents didn't know Mm-mm. what was going on or the challenges or how to 
parent without saying spare the rod and spoil the child from the previous generation. Right. Exactly. The um, It's really interesting. I, I certainly do not. I, I don't blame the previous generations no, for, no. for anything. Every generation is doing the best they can do with the information that they have and the skills that they have. And, you know, we're, we're no different in that respect, but I, I hope that each generation builds on the successes of the previous generations and can maybe be that much better. Were you able to draw on the experience of having, you had teenage kids, your kids are adult now, I think. Yes. Did it, uh, were there any moments in the book that particularly remind you of, of your childhood or your kids related stories? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, I, without going into specifics, um, but yeah, there there are a lot of elements of uh, both of my kids uh, in the characters in Calico Kids, as well as a lot of my friends uh, that I grew up with. But those those characters are amalgams of several friends. I mean, the the people that I drew from um, are really, you know, <laughs> there would be too many if I were to base one character on each each person I drew on. Well, I loved the opening chapter when a girl named Jeannie is missing. I'm like, John, you bought me this book. Is this your revenge for me buying you John Dies at the end? I, I didn't know, honestly. I didn't know. <laughs> but if it was, yes! <laughs> and still the book is full of spiders. But that's another reference. So yes. all right. this, is, this is how we kill off our friends in our fiction. Chaz is next. I'm oh, just excellent. Excellent. Uh, only on Mars for Chaz, though. Only on. Oh no, wait. Chaz would die on Venus because Mars is friendly to him. But oh, okay. changing that, you you have a huge amount of works out there, and I want to ask. You've got long experience. Has the market? You, you've written a book about teenagers in the eighties. Um, has the market changed, or has your focus changed that you would write this now? Uh, that is a really good question. I, uh, I tend to follow your rule 34, John, write what you want to read. I have never, I've never felt the attraction of writing to market. Uh, there are times when I kind of feel like, well, well, this might be a little bit easier if I were to write to, you know, what's hot now, but by the time I finish it, it's not going to be hot anymore. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's so, Honestly, it was a story that I wanted to tell writing Calico Kids when I did. Um, it, it got me kind of a break in the, you know, because when I have my nose down in the Airship Daedalus uh, in that main series, I, I pour a lot of heart and soul and blood, sweat and tears into it. And I really don't come up for air all that often. And so now, uh, especially now that I've just finished the first draft of the final chapter of that series... I could now look at other genres that I want to play in. I have a, a horror trilogy that I'm working on right now uh, that would be contemporary setting. And, you know, I, I'm just not really concerned with the trends in the market. Only, you know, how can I best market myself as the author uh, to get people interested in what I write? I had a POV question. Mm-hmm. You went with third-person omniscient yes. um, so that you could pretty much talk about what was in all of the kids' heads, I presume. And I'm also a head hopper quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, a, a little bit. So I was going to ask a deliberate choice or... Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm very intuitive uh, when it comes to the characters that I'm writing. I'm like their biggest cheerleader. 
Um, and I want to get inside their heads and I want to communicate what's inside their heads and their hearts. Um, and hopefully I'm doing it in a way that is not too distracting that people will find kind of natural to go into this person and then into that person. And then, um, that kind of thing. Um, it's always been kind of a natural style for me. I was almost hoping that we would get the POV of the, I don't want to give it away, but let's just say the young green haired girl, (laughs) but she's the one that you don't share with us. So no, no, she's the, and again, by design, she is the one that is the outsider. She has to be an enigma. She has to be the mystery. Um, But that said, there, there is some revelation toward the end and we get to know her a little bit better. Well, it's a beautiful parallel then because you don't give us any adult omniscience either. We don't oh, no, no. see grandmothers. We don't. So it really is the omniscient, but only from the kid's perspective. So yeah, there's I, hardly any adults in it at all. And the only adult that you really even get close to is in, is in one scene. And that's the, the football coach. Oh, I don't know. I liked the grandmother. Yeah. Oh, no, yeah, that's true. That's true. I don't, it's, that's funny because I don't see the, gra- I see the grandmother as one of the kids. <laughs> I, don't I, see I do, but adult. I want you to know that when you said pumpkin spice, I don't know if it'll catch on. I was howling <laughs> laughing. So thank you for that, <laughs> that snarky commentary on uh, September, October. Of it's course. Beautiful. Well, you know, it's 1982. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I thought there were a bunch of delightful Easter eggs, and I'm not going to do any other spoilers, but for, I, I think if you have your eyes open and look around when they read your book, people, you will find a lot of adorable Easter eggs. Of Oh, thank you. Okay. I, I definitely uh, made, made some plentiful, I, I hid some plentiful uh, Easter eggs throughout, yes. You, you did, and that was another thing that I feel like, if you've ever, because you've been a game designer and you've run a game and you create a thousand interesting clues and your players go through and smash things and rifle the desk and don't do <laughs> any of the things to find your clues. I just wanted you to know that somebody got your clues. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what else are you working on right now? Uh, well, like I said, um, I've got a, a horror trilogy that's actually based on uh, e- each um, book is based on a feature uh, screenplay. Uh, and I'm starting it off uh, with The Parish, which was a horror film that was actually, I had sold the script to a local um, film production company here in Seattle. And the film got an angel investor and got made and is now streaming worldwide. Um, and I was kind of thinking, wouldn't it be cool to like put in all the information that you can't put in to a visual storytelling right? Um, and, and kind of, you know, do a novelization, but in reverse, it's not the the film based on the novel. It's the novel based on the screenplay. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good twist. Tell us a little bit about the plot so people can run right out and see it. Well, it's on uh, streaming uh, on uh, Amazon Prime and a uh, few other services out there. It's called The Parish, uh, P-A-R-I-S-H. <laughs> it's kind of the, the, the play on, on words, but uh, it's about a, a single mom, a widow, uh, and her preteen daughter, the father slash 
husband is a Marine who's killed in Afghanistan. And in order to deal with um, their grief, they move a thousand miles away to a brand new community where they won't have the triggers of their, their home and their support network, unfortunately. And they end up digging up a 50 year old, uh, murder mystery and a, a tragedy that uh, uh, that they will have to put to rest. I think solving murder mysteries can be a very bonding experience. I mean, <laughs> look at the Scooby Kids. Absolutely, but it's not a guy in a rubber mask. It's uh, it's actually a yeah supernatural force, and so uh, yeah, it's it shares more with like The Exorcist and The Omen. The, the old school, slow burn, supernatural horror films of the 70s, as, as you might guess. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And are you working on any games right now? Any new games or? Uh, yes, actually, uh, we have a few things in the pipeline right now. Um, well, only what you can talk about, of course. <laughs> sure. So we have another supplement for the Airship Daedalus um, role-playing line. Uh, right now, there are, I think, about, uh, well, there are several source books for it right now, in addition to the, the main book. Uh, but this one is called um, Under the Surface, and it is about all the hidden worlds, uh, aquatic kingdoms, primeval environments within the Earth's core, you know, that kind of stuff. So we've got that going on. We've got uh, an expansion of our our popular beer and pretzels sci-fi game called uh, Star Legion. So we're doing an expanded version of that. Excellent. Um, and you were involved with, um, it's somebody else's IP, but how did you get tapped to help do the Red Dwarf RPG? That was actually, so I mentioned uh, running a game store back in West Seattle in the early 90s. And that was when I was in the thick of my Red Dwarf fandom. Uh, we as, would just, we would play we the all videos. Are, really yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, but even back then I was like, well, somebody's got to make an RPG of this because wouldn't it be fun to take kind of the premise of infinite, uh, infinite universes, infinite uh, dimensions and play some of these archetypes like an evolved pet or, you know, a, a lost human or, a mechanoid or something, you know, all of the basics from the show and oh. nobody did it. Nobody did it. Nobody did it. 10 years later, after we got deep seven press up and rolling, we were about to, let's see, we had our, our first premium uh, fantasy game, Aeroflight that had been out and we had just published this little game called Santa soldiers, which was a comedy RPG where you play paramilitary Christmas elves saving Christmas. <laughs> and sure as you do right (laughs) and so we were looking for a license to kind of put us more on the map but one that wouldn't break the bank because we we were not you know well financed to begin with (laughs) as most game companies are not (laughs) and then i came up with an idea i was kind of hearkening back to to the old days of the gamut in west seattle and said well why don't we try you know, hitting Grant Naylor Productions with with a concept for the Red Dwarf RPG. And lo and behold, they said yes and said that nobody had asked them. Wow. That's so awesome. <laughs> so <laughs> See, so we, now I'm imagining it's like I already love the evolved cat, but dog and parrot yeah. just 
it, you're right. It kind of writes itself. Yeah, we actually have iguanas and rabbits because the, both of those are actually mentioned in the show. Right. Um, and it, it's funny because the rabbits actually end up being kind of a fascist universe. So they're, they're very kind of S&M rabbits. Um, I, I have a loaded question for you, and, sure. and you, can, you can answer in code if you need to. If, if John and I were going to develop a gaming company starting now, how many, how long would it take before we could reasonably consider it to be profitable? Oh, well, so. Decades, <laughs> months. <laughs> well, okay, so uh, that's, that is a loaded question. I and know, I know. And you can say, we can take that whole question out if you want. <laughs> no, it's fine. It, uh, it's just very difficult to answer because every company is different and it depends right. on where your focus is. There are independent publishers that are doing much, much better than my company does, uh, mostly because mine has been a sideline pretty much since since we the license reverted back to Grant Naylor for Red Dwarf. Right. Uh, we were full full time paying our mortgage for about three years with that license. Uh, and then unfortunately, and I'm not saying that this would happen with anybody else, but unfortunately one of the two primary partners got sick with cancer and she ended up dying. Uh -huh. And so I had to put the, as the sole remaining partner, I had to put everything kind of on autopilot for a while and sort mm -hmm. out, right. You know, sort everything out. I finally did, but it's, I mean, it's been 15 years, 16 years now, and we're still just kind of getting back up to the level of visibility that we had. That makes sense. What are your tools that you use for writing? I mean, are you, when you sit down and say, I'm going to make a new RPG or, hey, I'm going to make the illustrated man something that's, if you were going to make 5e out of that. Where would you start? Like a pencil and paper, Microsoft notebook, a Scrivener? What what are your tools for writing? Uh, for long form fiction, it's definitely Scrivener. I'm a, a an early convert. Um, another author friend of mine, uh, Trish Heinrich, who who writes um, superhero fiction, she kind of turned me on to Scrivener and some of the the basic features. I'm still not a power user, um, and I don't think I will be, but it's. Uh, I'm finding my way with it and it's very, very useful. Um, for most things, I, I start notes in a, in a, you know, word document uh, or open office, right. And, um, or, or on a Google doc, <laughs> if I'm sharing it with my brother who uh, co-writes with me uh, on some of the game stuff and, We'll just kind of keep these documents running and, you know, then, then when we're in a, a position to have it edited, we edit the manuscript, we go into layout, um, you know, we go through sensitivity reads, we, uh, we have a, a finished layout uh, edit. And then it pause. goes. To I want to pause for a second. Sure. Sensitivity reads. You're the first person who's brought them up and talked to them that way. What, oh. tell the audience what a sensitivity read is. Well, so uh, my brother and I are the primary authors of our content. And so, and we're two middle-aged white guys. And so we're writing from that perspective, even when we're trying to put ourselves into the perspective of somebody who is not a middle-aged white dude. Um, and 
we want to be allies of marginalized demographics. Uh, and therefore, we need to make sure that, you know, as careful as we are when we're writing this stuff and editing this stuff, that we don't step into, um, you know, using terminology that's not acceptable anymore, that, um, you know, would, th- that people might take offense to, and, and not out of a sense of, oh my gosh, we don't want people to take offense. It's, we want to, uh, we want to be supportive. Right. We want to, you know, to be as supportive as possible for people with privilege and using that privilege to kind of open up discussions of non-white guy things. Um, we just put out a, a supplement for Aeroflight for our fantasy line called Realms of Death. And it's the first supplement that we've done that's kind of an Afrocentric uh, Afro fantasy um, product. And we had to be really, really careful in uh, our use of, of certain terms and terminology and, you know, just tossing around terms like savage uh, to describe kind of a wild um, environment. Um, you know, you might not think twice about that as a white person. Well, yes, it's a savage environment. Well, but I don't know. I've been to a lot of, you know, white collar security conferences and there's Mm -hmm. a lot of savagery out there. So (laughs) exactly. But I can see it is inherently a put down to a number of cultures because we are so often described as, oh, those savages. Right. Exactly. It's it's, we're sensitive enough now and there's bad connotations that some people take. But let's just say we're clued enough now to not to be gentle people. There's another Mm -hmm. one. And not want to insult people without knowing it. And that's exactly an insult. And I have never heard of this kind of reading before. And I love it because I too am a, I'm actually an older white dude. Yeah. And having, you know, having a reading where someone else could say, Hey, you might want to think about this or, Hey, exactly. why, why are you trashing people who live in uh, Santa Barbara? Right. You know, because you're calling them barbarians. And I'm like, I no idea that was an insult to Santa Barbarians. Why are, why are girls' skin colors related to food and boys' skin colors are related to trees? Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's, those are all interesting questions. And yeah, yeah the, but when it comes to, to uh, racial or ethnic concerns, um, you know, we, if we know that that's going to be a possibility of, um, you know, we might have something problematic in there that we'll want to fix before it goes out to the public, then we'll, we'll go through um, Gavin and I each um, have some go-to friends who are uh, friends of color and, and or LGBTQ uh, community. And um, we'll kind of put it through their filter as well before it ever hits the street. That's, I think, an excellent practice, and I recommend everyone should try it. I, I love it, honestly, yeah. I, because As, of the problems you could see disappearing if you did this. Absolutely, yeah. Never never offend anybody by accident, only on purpose. <laughs> Be surgical with your offense. <laughs> All right. And in closing, there's only one other thing I noted is that you mentioned you'd done voiceover works for Microsoft Industrial in, in videos in the Seattle Seahawks Pro Shop. Yep. Tell me that you've got something coming up with the Kraken because I've 
got to go see a Kraken game and get a jersey. Oh, man. I I really love their logo, too. <laughs> I have never been so excited about a new sports franchise. Right. Um, <laughs> but uh, that all depends on what I end up booking. I am still I, – I get probably about – 10 or so auditions a week from my agent at big fish and she's beyond wonderful. Um, but I haven't booked anything in a while and that could just be, you know, the energy I'm putting out there. I've done a lot of private projects and I've done a lot of the, more of the, uh, audible stuff for my, my own use, but, um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see if there's something that comes up, you know, I'm usually in line for it. A true renaissance man indeed. Todd, thank you so much for coming on talking to us today. Well, thank you guys. We were going to put links to Todd's stories and the other interesting things and games we mention on our website, which is www.ridersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter. We answer email. Todd, if somebody has a question for you, will you answer right away? I try. (laughs) I can't guarantee it, but I do try. We'll send it your way. (laughs) Thank you. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Maid Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with the Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsor is Forever Jackal Designs, enabling you all to buy cool WDC swag. And hey, thanks for listening. <laughs>